0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Tim Zalker, he's going to be speaking. He's a pastor and leader of the ministry called New England Urban Church Ministry, a church planting, and he's in Rhode Island. Why don't you come up? Uh, he is someone I've known since 1991 when I began, be, began college. He was one of the staff workers at my Christian fellowship. And he was one of my mentors. And uh, one of the, really, he's the guy that taught me how to tie a bow tie. He, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, but more than anything, as he discipled me, he showed me by his life what it means to love God and love people. He has always been a man who loved to share the gospel with people, and not in a forceful way, but in a winsome way, because of the love that God has for everybody and whether it was people in our fellowship or people he met on the street, um, he was uh, always welcomed with his warm personality and his love for jesus and so uh, he 's also the leader of the ministry of evangelism out there, ch- planting churches in the northeast. And our church will be sending a team in July, I believe it's July 9th through 15th, uh, to work with them. It's going to work with kids in parks, and so uh, entire families are invited. Uh, For example, we're bringing our kids, and singles are invited, high school students are invited as well uh, to help go minister to young people in Rhode Island for a week this summer. And so without further ado, Pastor Tim will give us our message.
1: We are thrilled that you're coming this summer, those of you who will, and if you're still deciding, please join us, Uh, it'll be great to have you. So thankful for your partnership in the gospel in so many ways, it's a joy to be here. I was told I was supposed to stop at 11, so I'll keep my eye on that clock, and uh, (laughs) glad for the extra hour. I'm glad you got up this morning, it's hard. I wonder, does Pastor Dave have a guest preacher every spring when the clock changes? (laughs) wonder. Would you look with me at uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16, Matthew sixteen, thirteen 13 through 16, open your Bibles, open your device, whatever you have and follow along. And then I would encourage you to stay there with it because we're going to work our way through this passage. We're answering the question, why plant churches? Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. We'll be loosed in heaven. And I I left my bottle of water there. Would you just toss it up to me? Thank you very much. Appreciate it. When I was a kid, we used to play uh, King of the Hill. Big dirt pile in our neighborhood. And one person would uh, get to the top of the hill... Really, this was a dirt pile. You know, when you're little, it looks big. When you're older, you realize it's probably about this high. So you get to the top of the, of the, uh, the summit, and then everybody else would try to rush the summit and push the king off. And this would go on uh, for a while until we were all too tired. It was fun and games until we grow up. And then we realize that king of the hill gets played out not on a dirt pile, but by leaders in every kind of structure that exists in society. And to stay on the hill, some leaders resort to abusing power, don't they? This gets played out in families, in churches, in schools, and in the nations of the world. This happened in ancient Israel, and we read about it in in Ezekiel chapter 34. God says, you can just listen, God says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with wool and you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds, and I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flocks, so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flocks from their mouths, and I will no longer, uh, they will uh, no longer be food for them. God God in, in his amazingly loving and good leadership says that he will provide for Israel a completely different kind of leader. Nothing like this. And that's his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the opposite of this. He came to earth to die for his people, not kill them. He sacrificed for us. He didn't make us sacrifice for him. He is categorically different and the kind of leaders that this passage speaks against and that we ought to be wary of. Matthew, throughout his whole gospel, is telling us Jesus, the king, is here. Enter into his kingdom. He's a good king. Be subject to his rule in your life. Submit to him. And so my my preface to this sermon about church planting, we'll get there, about church planting is a clear declaration that God hates the abuse of power and so should we. Jesus is a king who always does what is good, always does what is right, always does what is beneficial for his followers. And so... As we talk about submission today, we're not talking about unhealthy submission or dangerous submission. Friends, there there are a small number of pastors around the world today, this morning, who will use pulpits like this to manipulate and abuse. A small number of pastors today will be living double lives. These people must be called out, removed, and prosecuted if need be. But when Jesus saw bad leaders, he didn't do away with leadership. He replaced them with good leaders. God gave us the supreme new leader in Jesus. And he calls us to lead like him, not like those that we saw in Ezekiel. Well, we're answering the question, why plant churches? And for us, why plant churches in hard, impoverished, violence-ridden neighborhoods? Why plant churches? I'm gonna back into the answer to that by working our way through this passage, and you'll see that we'll end up with, I think, what is a robust and a clear answer to this question. So let's keep the passage open in front of us. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 13. So Jesus, with his disciples, walks in uh, having this conversation into Caesarea Philippi, the passage says. Now, um, in, in Caesarea Philippi, there's this, there's this uh, famous cave. And in the cave of Philip, the ruler over this area, that's why it's called Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philip. There were two Caesareas. Um, there was this cave, and, and uh, they had carved these niches um, with... Uh, just one after the other with um, little statues of gods, all sorts of different gods uh, for the people to worship. And so Jesus is walking along with his disciples and, and no doubt they're looking at this or they're aware of it. And Jesus says, so what about me? Am I just like one of these? Who, who do you say that I am? Verse 14, well, Peter's answer is... Correct. Sort of. He says, well, you, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one from heaven, anointing like with oil over a, a new king that's to be crowned. Uh, instead of crowned, they would anoint them. And on this, Peter is right. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one from God. But he's not entirely right because Peter is expecting a victorious king that would uh, uh, liberate the, the Jews from Rome, right? Yeah, this is what they're all thinking. And, and so he's, he's kind of thinking um, uh, a Messiah of Psalm 2, crush the oppressors, get Rome out of here, give us back our, our, our land and our rights, and take us out from underneath the thumb of these horrible Romans. But as we know, we can see forward in the story, Jesus came as a dying, suffering king, a Messiah who would crush not Rome but sin and death and Satan for all people, including us, thankfully, for all of eternity, not just in that one time. There are similarities between the temple of all these gods and Caesarea Philippi in our culture, for sure. They had a lot of gods to choose from. In our society, we love choice. We're masters of choice. We don't do arranged marriages for the most part. We date and choose. We don't have to live where we grew up. We can move somewhere else and go wherever we want. And my my kids are spread all over. I've got a daughter in California. I've got a son here in Chicago. Um, And then, well, two of them are uh, nearby in Rhode Island. That's nice. We'll see. It was my idea that my daughter go to California. People, How could you let your daughter go to college in California and, well, it was my idea, but now I'm realizing, oh, she may marry somebody there and stay there for good. Ugh. We spread all over. Massive selection of products and services. Um, walk into a supermarket, you're just dazzled by the, if you're not used to it, if you travel and you go to some other country where they'll have so many choices, you come back and you stand there in the cereal aisle and you're like, oh my goodness, it's crazy, we love our choices. Gender is fluid a choice you can make, at least we think, and we envision ourselves as free to make whatever choices we want. At a very fundamental level, we live as if we're free to choose our own truth. We believe we can put ourselves on an individual journey, able to construct what's right and wrong. We believe we can choose whatever makes us happy. Most fundamentally, in short, we are deeply committed to our own kingship. This makes the idea of submitting to a ruler, the Messiah, all the more difficult. It goes against our instincts. So the challenge for the people living in Caesarea Philippi was to choose among all these options for a religious ruler. Moderns like us, in this past hundred years, I think we've largely made up our choice. We've decided who we're going to live for, and it's us. I don't think we're making this choice much anymore. We worship ourselves. Jesus' question to his disciples is, in fact, a question for all of us. Who is Jesus? Is he irrelevant? Is he interesting? Is he a good religious person? It's one option. Another option is, well, he's important and um, he's there to serve me. I need him, sometimes I need an extra boost at work, I need an extra boost on the field or on the court or wherever it is that I perform. He's one of the many things in toolbox, in our toolbox to make life go better and sadly, many Christians or those who call themselves Christians think of God this way. God is there and I draw on him occasionally when I need the extra. The third option is that God is, in fact, the anointed king, meaning that he is the creator, the judge, and the ruler of all things. In this case, you're no longer the one who guides your life. He does, and you submit to him. And friends, this is a fork in the road for all of us at some point to borrow borrow the title of a little booklet that I like. and In fact, if you come uh, serve with us this summer, you'll see these booklets, uh, Who Will Be King? So who will be king? This is a fork in the road for all of us. Will Jesus be the king or will you be the king? In fact, this is not just a fork in the road. This is the most fundamental question that you can face in your life. And if you have answered Jesus, you are a Christian. But this is a question that you must and will continue to answer day after day after day. In fact, every exhortation in the New Testament is essentially uh, a a way of saying, follow Jesus. It's living out the Great Commission, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. Michael Kruger says submitting is a substantive and a weighty act of self-denial. It can feel like death even though we know that it's the path to life. Submission doesn't come easily to my heart, I don't think to any of us. Which leads me to say the most important thing that I want to say specifically about submission to Jesus Christ. And I said this already, but I really want to emphasize this. Jesus, our King, is only, always, ever, good. Jesus is only, always, ever good. You've never seen a ruler, a king, like him on earth, and we never will. I, I wish we had time, I, I, would, ask you, I would ask you for, uh, for a little dialogue. How, how do you think Jesus is most often described in the New Testament? You, you don't have to answer, I'll tell you. I'd like you to answer in your head for a second. How is Jesus most often described in the New Testament? The answer is compassionate. I wonder if you're surprised. When we sin, Jesus feels mercy toward us. When we feel burdened by rules, Jesus says, My burden is light. When we're foolish, Jesus promises wisdom. When we feel unloved, Jesus reminds us that he loves us so much that he willingly suffered and died for us. When we grow distant from Jesus, he says he waits right there on the outside of the doorway of our heart, waiting for us to repent and turn back toward him. When we sin, he's like the prodigal father. Watching, waiting for us to repent and forgiving. That's Jesus. Yes, submission is hard for us, but man, it shouldn't be that hard for a king like this. Number two, point number two in the sermon. That's the main point. I missed it. I got my clicker. Here's the main point. Submission goes against our instincts. It requires deep faith. It results in deep blessing. Jesus is the Messiah King. We are blessed when we submit to him. Point two the church is the embassy of King Jesus. The church is the embassy of King Jesus. On to verse 18. Now, uh, there are details about this passage that I just, uh, I'm going to leave them to Pastor Dave. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. He can answer these some other time. What I want us to see today clearly is that Jesus is our king. First point. Second point. That he has established an embassy on earth for his rule and his reign. The home of the kingdom of God is in heaven, but it has an embassy here on earth and that is the church. Peter declares his conviction that Jesus is truly the savior of the world. Jesus says that on the basis of that conviction, Jesus is going to build his church. Interesting. I'm not sure I would have constructed this whole thing this way. The foundational, so based on Peter's uh, confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the foundational belief of a true church is that Jesus is the savior of the world. That's, that's the foundation of a true church. Then look at verse 19. Jesus says that he will entrust to the church the keys of the kingdom. And here, too, he's still talking about the gospel. He hasn't changed topics. The, that, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So keys let us into a house, right? So um, they let us into a house or they lock the house. Similarly, the gospel is the key that provides entrance into God's kingdom. It also, at the same time, it prevents entry into God's kingdom. So how does it provide entry into the kingdom? Well, uh, Paul says in in Romans 10, 13, and 14, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, But Paul adds how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? In other words, I can't believe in Jesus for salvation uh, and and the kingdom is not unlocked to me through the gospel unless the gospel is preached. So the keys of the kingdom are the preaching of the gospel. The keys of the kingdom are the preaching of the gospel, which when believed, unlock the kingdom to that person. On the other hand, when the church preaches the gospel, it's also saying, well, at first it's saying this is the way of salvation, but then it's also simultaneously saying this is not the way to salvation. This is not the way in. And so there's a locking, an unlocking, and there's a a locking. Or the language here is um, loosing or binding. Well, how do we we bind the kingdom? How do we lock the kingdom? Well, um, it's when you say, this is salvation and this isn't salvation. You can't work your way in, you can't buy your way in, you can't believe in some other king. Does that make sense? So Jesus the king has entrusted the church with authority to declare that the way, what the way to God is and what it isn't. In, um, in 1986, I was uh, traveling with a group of students. This is just a little bit before Ed's time. Um, and I was in Poland. And uh, I, I had my passport stolen. This is the U.S. Embassy in uh, Warsaw. And uh, I was with a group of students. And um, long story, I'll keep it short. My, my passport was stolen, and which meant that I had to go to the U.S. Embassy in Warsaw by myself for three days, didn't speak Polish. I I, I just wish I could tell you the story. By the way, the hospitality that we see Poland extending to the Ukrainians right now is just, I'm not at all surprised, it's so wonderful. I experienced the same thing. Uh, I I just, I feel so warm hearted as I watch them open their doors uh, to so many Ukrainians at the moment. I had to go to the U.S. Embassy in Poland to have them affirm my U.S. citizenship so that I could leave Poland and get back into the U.S. I, by the way, I love my, um, my old passport. It, it was, you know it was issued in Warsaw, Poland. that's cool. I'm a U.S. citizen with a passport issued in, in Warsaw. It's old, but um, well, they weren't making me a U.S citizen. The embassy did not make me a citizen. I became a citizen of the United States when I was born. The church does not make you a Christian. You became a Christian when you were reborn. But the church affirms your citizenship. It says, you have professed, like Peter did, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Messiah. And we see evidence of that in the fruit of your life. That's what a church does as an embassy of the kingdom. Now, I don't know. This all sounds a little bit like a class lecture. Let me me warm this up a little bit. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. We have no other hope. His love for us is deep. His compassion for our suffering is beyond our comprehension. He cares about our pain. He knows what you're, what you've come in with that's heavy on your heart this morning. He knows what you've been suffering this week. He knows what you've been suffering this past decade. He cares about the brokenness in your family, your immediate family, your extended family. He cares about the brokenness that you see on your campus, in your workplace, wherever it is. He cares deeply He is a compassionate king. Scripture says, Surely he has come to bury our griefs, bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Jesus quotes the Old Testament and says, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Our hearts are broken from sin. How long does it take to wake up in the morning, become conscious, and to remember, oh, that's right. That's right. And only a saving king can rescue us. His death and his resurrection make freedom from sin in part now, fully in the future. Only he can make that possible. His rule and his reign over our lives leads us out of destructive lives that lead to slavery, to sin, and to death. And what he commands us to do as our king is supremely good for us always. His kingship and his rule under which we submit always leads us away from death, always leads us away from, from uh, uh, the consequences of our sin out of shame and out of guilt, and it is always good for us. And the church plays a key role in this. The church is entrusted with this message. We are God's megaphone on earth to proclaim this message everywhere. Albania and the inner cities of our poorest communities across the nation and in the Northeast and everywhere else on your campus, in your workplace, in your family. The greatest mercy that the church can provide to a hurting world is the mercy of Jesus Christ. The greatest mercy that we can provide to a hurting world is the mercy of Jesus Christ. Christ the King ruling and reigning in our hearts and transforming lives. This is why we plant churches. This is why we're planting churches among the poorest communities of our inner cities. What is the hope for drug-ridden, fatherless, abusive, broken neighborhoods? It's Christ, Christ the King who brings a good rule to our lives. Which is why I'm thankful we're working together. Deeply grateful for the partnership of Harvest as we seek to do what God has called us to do. Um, It's just so, it's, it's just a joy. It's just a joy to be partnering in this together. And, you know, I have to be honest, I also wish I were going to Albania with you guys. I got, I'm going to slip a, a, a 30 second story in here. I was dating a girl whose uh, family was, uh, they were missionaries um, in Eastern Europe and Soviet Union. And this was before Albania was open. In fact, at that time, I used to get on uh, shortwave radio and listen to Radio Tirana because. Nobody could get in and out of Albania. The word back then was that there were no Christians in Albania, period. This was the 1980s. And I was dating a girl whose dad was a crazy missionary guy, crazy. He promised his daughter's hand to anybody that would open the country of Albania to the gospel. (laughs) I dated her for a year. I wasn't committed. We didn't get married. Uh, I'm just saying. So I'm excited you're going to Albania. Everybody on the face of the earth needs to hear this message of hope and salvation. Everybody on the face of the earth needs to hear this. But there are a lot of places that get neglected, and one of them is inner city poor communities. I'm telling you, uh, the church planting movement for the last 40 years has been rich and healthy across the nation and around the world, except among the urban poor. Nobody wants to go there. What seminary what, what seminarian coming out of, out of uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School like I did, or any, any other seminary wants to say, um, hey, sweetie, let's go to that neighborhood where they just shot up five people last week and and, uh, let's go plant a church there and live there and raise the kids there. Um, We want to be near uh, a good indie coffee shop (laughs) to plant a a church and a place where our kids, you know, we think are going to be safe. And furthermore, these churches are not financially self-sustaining. Wow, really? I'm going to go sacrifice? To live in a place that can't even support me, this is missionary work, and so we're doing missionary work, planting churches in urban poor communities because of exactly what we looked at this morning. Um, we believe that it is the only hope for the inner city, and um, I, I just get so deeply motivated by the, the the notion of bringing the riches of the cross of Christ to the poorest of these uh, inner city communities. We have. We have there, you know, we talk about food deserts in these communities These are church deserts also by and large for the most part when Christians go into the inner-city poor communities um, They they lose their theological minds They forget about the cross of Christ and they say well The most important thing is what I can see here is well. We need to address uh, the needs of material poverty And well, yes, we do just as Jesus did and just as Christians have done for the last 2,000 years Absolutely, we need to address those needs but the core of those needs is not the lack of finances. It's a lack of um, submission to Jesus Christ, the King. It's a lack of knowledge about Jesus. And um, how do we do that? We, we need to plant churches in these communities that live out the grace and the glory, the beauty of the cross of Christ in, in flesh, just the way you guys live with one another and in this community. Let me uh, just tell you, Um, in the remaining minute or two. So this is where we're planning uh, one of our churches um, at Central Falls, Rhode Island. It's one square mile with 20,000 people in it. It's the 19th most densely populated place in the country. It's crazy. It's really... So how do you do that? Triple-decker houses next to each other everywhere. That's about all there is in this little city. But there's no um, gospel preaching church right there. And there just needs to be. And Central Falls is known for poor education. It was famous in 2010. You can read about it on CNN articles for firing all of, its, uh, all of its teachers and all of its school staff and starting from scratch. It was so bad. And um, I could go on and on. Uh, last year, uh, Jonathan uh, Lugo uh, on the left and his wife, Teddy, and their three kids moved from Puerto Rico. They're Puerto Ricans, they've never lived on the mainland, uh, moved up uh, to New England to plant a church in Central Falls. And if you come this summer, you'll meet them. Can't wait for you to meet them, they're awesome. And i um, very thankful for them. Jonathan is halfway through a uh, pastoral internship of two years uh, in the process of planting a church in Central Falls. And um, at the same time that uh, Jonathan was coming up, um, Elizabeth Barry, who's there on the left, and then that's her in the truck, uh, serving ice cream this past summer on a hot day to kids in Central Falls, um, also came, she was in a... Uh, a dangerous place in uh, South Central Asia um, uh, for two years with Pioneers as a missionary. She heard about us on a podcast in the middle of um, where she was living and uh, had to come home because of COVID and she said, I know you've never met me but um, I I live in Florida now and I'm interested in coming to work with you guys in New England. I was like, wow. that's Only God does things like this. And so in the midst of COVID shutdown, when I thought everything was really going to slow down, God sped up uh, the process of bringing the Lugos from Puerto Rico and Elizabeth from um, from Florida, and they settled in last year, hit the road running, and it's just been uh, tremendous. And not only that, but these two handsome guys um, came uh, last July, scoped out the land. They were uh, uh, Joshua and Caleb, checking out the um, checking out scary Rhode Island, and uh, we had a wonderful time together. Two handsome men on the screen there. We won't say who the other one is. Um, The mission of New England urban church planting, and I'm wrapping up here, uh, is to equip church planters to plant diverse, sustainable, gospel-centered churches in New England's poorest inner-city communities. And... um, with, with that mission before us, uh, deeply grateful that you're willing to partner with us in establishing embassies of the gospel. And I, I'm trying to cement your faces in my mind and see who I uh, will recognize this summer. Um, I wish we could just take all of you. I know you all can't come, but we love what we're doing. We love being with you. And so uh, I look forward to seeing some of you this summer. Jesus came into the world to glorify himself and the Father by living and dying for us. He came to fight for us. He came to rescue us. He is a ruler like no other. I want to encourage you again this morning. Renew your submission. Renew the the posture of a heart of submission to his lordship, to his rule over you, over your life. Trust him that he will always be good. You will be deeply, deeply blessed. Let's pray. Father, this is not something we can do. Uh, We cannot muster up the energy this morning to be more submissive. We need the spirit to do that. We have the direction of your word, and yet we need the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. And so by your grace, Father, would you, knowing our weakness, knowing also our stubbornness, weak but stubborn, what crazy people we are, in our weakness and in our stubbornness, Father, would you soften us and would you strengthen us to submit our hearts to a Savior who loves us deeply, And you only ever always has our good in mind for your glory. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.